Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. It is only people who don't know what they're doing that can do marvelous things in some areas because received wisdom will sometimes you'll talk yourself out of it if you've got lots of people who've done it before hi guys it's jimmy Doherty here and welcome to another episode of on jimmy's farm the podcast that hopefully answers some of your environmental woes as well as trying to give us all a bit of the good life along the way now just coming along the farm track here because I've come to visit some of my most beloved of animals and these are my pigs. Hello guys. Oh, can you hear them? Now I'm looking at four beautiful Gloucestershire old spots. These are such lovely pigs. They used to be known as the orchard pig because they used to sort of you know, forage in old orchards and the saying goes that they get the spots on their back because of the windfalls dropping down and hitting them on the back. I don't know if that's actually true, but I love that story. Now, my guest today is one of my environmental heroes. He's basically like the Willy Wonka of the natural world. Hang on, hey pigs, what are you doing? No, no, you can't follow me. I've got this... <laughs> Have you had your breakfast? Is that what you're following me for? Listen, you can't keep following me because you'll end up at my house. Stay... Honestly, there's a big line of pigs behind me. So, Tim Smith, Sir Tim Smith an amazing character. He's one of these guys that just makes things happen. He started lots of different projects and he's got new projects on the go. And one of the most famous ones is the Eden Project. When I said to him, how did you create that? He said, positivity. To create something is as elaborate and amazing as the Eden Project is just breathtaking. Now he started his career in music. And then he thought, you know, I've, I've fallen out of love with music somewhat so he wanted to become a pig farmer I don't know where he got that idea from so he went off down to Cornwall and he found this old site and he discovered it was an old derelict garden and that turned into the Lost Gardens of Heligan and he resurrected that tried to put it back to its natural and its original glory and by doing so he discovered the story of the gardeners that went off to the First World War and, and never come back. And he put so much energy into that. And if you've ever been to Lost Gardens, it's, it's truly breathtaking. But not settled on that, which is basically a life's work for most people, he went on then to develop the Eden Project, which is just incredible. So I have a really lovely chat with Tim. I hope you enjoy it. He's a real inspiration. Lots of exciting stuff happening as well. Basically, you can't stop the man. Anyway, hope you enjoy, and I will see you back with the pigs in a bit. The lovely Tim Smith, thank you so much for joining me. The pleasure's all mine. <laughs> when I first interviewed you, what would that have been, 15-odd years ago? I think so, I think so. And damn you, your hair is still remains stuck to your scalp. How's, well, it's, how you it's, done all, it's done all right. Well, that's pig oil. <laughs> Excellent. Pig oil sorts it right out. <laughs> Got to admit, I was absolutely in awe because you're quite a figure and quite a character and you were unlike any sort of environmentalist, conservationist I'd ever met before because there you were with a cigar in your hand and behind you was this amazing structure, which was the Eden Project. And I think you'd only been open about four or five years, something like that. But it was awe-inspiring because you were less environmentalist, more rock and roll. 
So where did your journey start? Because you weren't really an environmentalist to start off with. You were in the music business. Well, I began, actually, my career path was that of poor student. I think we might have that in common. I found myself under complete false pretenses at Durham University in 1973, where they were under the impression I was a great rugby player. And I think they thought that they would make an exception for my academic weakness by the fact that I was going to be some super duper second row forward. What they didn't know was that although we were an unbeaten rugby team, the competition around where my school was wasn't perhaps, let me put it this way, of the stiffest uh, opposition. And so I went down the race course at Durham where they had all the, you know, the grown ups started to play rugby. And I took one look at these guys and they were, I don't know, let's not exaggerate, probably 20% bigger than I was. You know, and I just looked at them and I said, this is going to hurt. It's going to hurt a lot. And I decided that I would just forget rugby. And I never played a game of rugby in Durham and was skint. And my mate, Charlie, who sadly died earlier this year, uh, who's on my stairs at uni, he was a very good guitarist. And uh, we started talking throughout that first term about how could we earn some money playing some music and so we formed a band doing covers and things like that and this is right at the start by the time we actually started playing which is end of 74 we did our first gigs punk was just starting to come out and by the time we were finished in 76 punk was absolutely heaving so we were making more money renting our PA system than we were playing ourselves <laughs> but my degree was in anthropology and I, I actually the only proper day job I ever had was straight after I finished I went to work at the Bose Museum in Barnard Castle which is the most extraordinary museum put together very eccentric. You wouldn't know from one woman to the next what you were going to see. And you're too young to know this, but it was the hot summer of 1976, which any archaeologist who was alive then will refer to it as the Holy Grail summer, because it was so hot that all over the country, crop marks were showing where there had been structures that previously had never been found before. So, for example, in Durham, the archaeological record went up by over 50%. In one year. Wow, that's incredible. Ah, oh, it was amazing. Oh, you know the principle, don't you, that when plants of any kind are growing over a ditch, say, there'll be more water absorbed in there. So if it's really, really hot, the grass above will take on a deeper green than everything else which is being burnt off. So it's a bit like seeing the negative of a photograph. And the opposite, of course, if there are structures with foundations, they show up incredibly bleached. So you see a positive, you see a white line everywhere as opposed to a dark line. And so we found Roman ruins, we found prehistoric Bronze Age ruins and things. And if you're interested in that sort of stuff, which I really am, it was just like walking into the pages of like Arthur Conan Doyle and discovering every day I just longed to get up to go to work. It's the most blissful feeling. And I never wanted to lose that. And when I did leave it at the start of 77, it was with a great degree of regret. It's just that I was earning so little money that by the time I had driven to Barnard Castle from Durham and back, and if I'd tempted myself with a sandwich for lunch, I had nothing at the end of the week, absolutely nothing. And so the dust was blown off the band and away we went. And we went to London because we knew that the roads of London are paved with gold, you know that. <laughs> and we arrived in London to expect ourselves to be God's gift. And gosh, I can't tell you, it was like a punch in the solar plexus to realise that on any day of the week, there'd be 30,000 musicians in London better than you were. Wow, yeah, that's heartbreaking, isn't it? <laughs> it's heartbreaking, but it's an incredible reality check. And also, those who were being successful were people who were obsessive about socialising. To be successful in the 70s, and indeed in the 80s, you had to give your entire life to being in the biz. Yeah. I was married at the end of the 70s and I had a young kid in 1980. So you had to police that thing, whether you were going to be a ligger or you were going to be, you know, a more boring chap and hope. I was a more boring chap and hoped and nothing happened. And I was doing minicab driving taking parcels for W.H. Smith and things like that around wow. the country. Um, no, not W.H. Smith, Smith's Crisps. Where are they now? <laughs> so anyway, the source of what was to change my life was that I've played football, I don't really know London, but Clapham Common on a Sunday, you'd have scratch teams of people who were in the entertainment business would play soccer by the Windmill Pub, you know, on the south side there. And I went a few times. I was crap at football, but it was about as close to ligging as I could get. 
And to be honest, I wasn't the fastest fullback either. And I hauled <laughs> this bloke down with complete impunity and actually rather hurt him. And someone came over to me and said, Jesus, you know who you just, you know, knackered up here? And I said, no, who's that? He said, that's Pat Stapley. He's the main sound engineer at Abbey Road Studios. So I got up and I pulled him up and I said, my dear fellow. <laughs> and he would become a friend. And um, so my career began a bit like my first job being at Buckingham Palace. It's a really interesting start, I think, to your career that not a lot of people know about when they see you standing in front of the Eden Project and, you know, standing up at COP and, and giving your points of view and rattling everyone's cages. That you know, They don't often see you as that young guy struggling as a musician, the mover and shaker of the music world. And that's what I love about you. I think that's probably one of your key strengths, that you haven't come from this purest origin of botany right from university into the career you've had a checkered career that I think's added so much what influence did that have on you to start up the amazing Eden project which this country hadn't seen anything like it in its history well actually Jimmy it's a very strange question you ask because well it didn't go quite like that what happened was I ended up being you know relatively successful in the music industry and fell very much out of love with it because one of the things, again, I think we have this in common, is that when you turn something you love into a profession, there are elements of it which you really don't like because they somehow... If you love music, but you know that the way to commercial success is three minutes and 40 seconds of an introduction, two verses, chorus, one verse, two choruses, middle eight, out, and you've done it enough times, you start to hate yourself a bit because you actually promised yourself you were going to be, I was going to say, better than that. Look, the people who are absolute geniuses, we could each make a list as long as our arms. But if you're not an absolute genius who has, you know, been struck by stardust to produce melodies which become the soundtrack to everybody's life. And that is such a rare gift if you've got that, because the ones that have that gift come to the surface. People forget how rare it is. It's just that because of the way the world's markets work, you hear of them. So you think, oh, there's hundreds of stars. Yes, but there's about eight billion people. You know, I was hugely influenced by a schoolmaster when I was between eight and 13 called Mr. Gilbart, Tom Gilbart, who always used to say, you must be interested in everything because you never know what is connected to everything else, which strangely is something that you and I talk about in terms of ecology and, and what have you. And he he was strangely a Cornishman. Oh, well, that's not strange. It's just that I'd never been to Cornwall. <laughs> he had the most extraordinary thing every night at tea time. He had this incredible mustachios, which came out like this. He would eat a whole onion, a large onion, which he would peel and eat raw, slice by slice, until it was finished, and then tea was over. And every evening he would read the boys a story because he believed that boys live in their imagination and you needed to feed their imagination. So we had all of those kind of classic 1950s, 60s books read to us, you know, Ryder Haggard, you know, King Solomon's Mines and She and things like that. OK, they may appear rather colonialist now, but that world, those lost worlds, you know, and that leads me to where I ended up, which was Arthur Conan Doyle's Lost Worlds. And that book captured me completely, the idea of going into a rainforest and then suddenly seeing in the distance a tabletop mountain, which you climb. And at the top of it is a crater, the volcano, and there is a lost civilization. And that was the whole idea of the Eden Project. When I started thinking about the Eden Project, which came after my restoring the gardens, the lost gardens. But the imagery of it was incredibly fresh in my mind. And I knew something that I'd learned from the music industry, which is that if you love something and you're not a freak, there will be millions and millions of people who feel the same way you do. The issue is simply marketing. It's true, but it's only when you look back on hindsight, sometimes you can recognise that. But when you started Lost Gardens of Heligan, you know, that must have felt quite isolating because you often are surrounded by naysayers. That, well, what, what on earth are you doing digging up this old garden? Because you wanted to be a pig farmer originally, which I think is madness. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You wanted to be a pig farmer originally with rare breed pigs. And you discovered the Lost Gardens of Heligan and the story behind it. But even doing that, it does feel isolating when you are you know, starting a project like that. Although you did it, you had a partner at the time working together doing it, but the people around you must have thought you were absolutely bonkers. They did, actually. They did. I think sometimes 
it is only people who don't know what they're doing that can do marvellous things in some areas because received wisdom will sometimes, you'll talk yourself out of it if you've got lots of people who've done it before. So, for example, the RHS, the Royal Horticultural Society, and the National Trust had both had a look at Heligan and said it was beyond repair. There's nothing to see. I just fell in love with something completely different, which wasn't a plant collection. I fell in love with the idea that here in this geography, people had lived here actually probably for two, 3,000 years, and the plates of time, one on top of the other, uh, which would then end up in these marvellous, or derelict, but once marvellous gardens, was a stage. I fell in love with the idea of a stage where people lived out their lives. And then during my basic first scrummage in the undergrowth with John, we found a thunderbox room, you know, the old toilets in one of the working buildings. And it was purest luck. It was a sunny day, and the angle at which we were clearing the floor of this collapsed toilet meant the sun came in over my shoulder onto the plaster. And I could see faintly as I looked up. I mean, there was no reason to look up, but I did. And I could see that there was handwriting in the plaster written with a pencil, at which point I got quite consumed by interest with what was written there. And we got a magnifying glass and we put shelter over it and it dried out. Someone had written, come ye not here to sleep nor to slumber. And then over the course of that year, which it turned out, it was signed August 1914, but all the garden staff who'd gone there to have a slash had signed their names. And that was pretty exciting to John and I, but even that wouldn't have changed the course of things if John, I think, said, well, let's go for a pint in St. U, which is the nearest little village. And we went to St. U and completely off the cuff, as we came out of the pub, having had a pint, he said, let's go and have a look at the war memorial at the church, just in front, literally 30 yards away. And to our astonishment, three of the names that were signed on the wall were there on the war memorial. And John and I were completely, it's so obvious we should have looked, but we weren't in that frame of mind before. And the moment we saw that, we then changed our afternoon and we drove to Goran, which is about two miles away, and we found a few more of the people that worked the place. And then we went to Mevagissi and found some more. So of the 22 garden staff that had been there in its heyday, I think we found on that first day of looking about 14 of the people on war memorials. I may be exaggerating, maybe 12, but that sort of area. And we got to talking and... I did a bit of research and to my astonishment discovered that there was no single working garden anywhere in Britain at that time. Wow. Nowhere, not in the National Trust, not in private ownership that was open to the public. It was as if everybody thought the history of the working classes was of no interest. And this goes back to my music thing. I was fascinated and I absolutely knew that if I was fascinated, there would be millions and millions and millions of others who would be as well. Yeah. So John and I said, well, look, let's do the whole bloody opera, which was ridiculous. We didn't have the money even to do one building, but we wanted to tell the story of the ordinary men and women who had made this garden great, not the always told story of the Blue Bloods, the aristocrats. And we struck very lucky. We persuaded the BBC to do a documentary right at the start, and it won Documentary of the Year when it came out. And there was only one thing wrong with it. It was beautiful, and Stefan Buchatsky, who did it, just forgot to mention, it was a terrible mistake. He forgot to mention that we hadn't opened to the public yet at all. So literally the day after the Gardens World documentary went out, we had the good ladies of Dartmouth turned up in a coach and you don't say no to the good ladies of Dartmouth. And so we escorted them through, you know, our Somme reenactment scene. And then by the third day, we actually were quite desperate. We didn't know what to do because we knew that three coaches were coming on that day and it, it was mud everywhere. And Tiggy, our builder, who had volunteered to do some work, he said, look, he said, it's obvious. He said, I'll go and get the bolt croppers and I'll cut the toilet out of the portaloo and I'll go down to Woolworths, you know, the shop which is now gone, and I'll get some cloakroom tickets and we'll charge people to come in. So it is astonishing. The financial basis of the restoration came from the BBC forgetting to say we weren't open and us having to accommodate an audience that we hadn't wanted to expect, if you see. Then they would, having paid, they would come into the garden and they go down to like the melon yard, you know, where the pineapple pits are. Yes, yeah. And they'd say, "What are you doing?" And you'd explain what you're doing, and they'd then say, "Well, what's happened over there?" And I say, "I've no idea, but here's a machete." <laughs> so people were paying to come in and then doing the work. You see, it's amazing because what you're describing sounds like madness, but it's 
the people that know you just know, well, that's Tim. That's how you operate. And the uniqueness of Heligan is the combination of your love of plants, but also telling it through a human story, telling it through these gardeners that went off to the First World War, this horrific new style of warfare that just minced millions and millions of servicemen to pieces. And you told this terrible story through the beauty of restoring this wonderful garden. And it is such a beautiful thing to walk around because it's full of natural wonder, but it tells a story as you walk around. And everything from the rare breed farm that you've got there, which is, a you know, still that's part of your life. And that's the reason you started there. You're very successful in the music business. You left that because you sort of not fell out of love with it, but there's certain aspects you didn't like of it. You started... The Gardens of Heligan and did an amazing job of that. So then after that hardship of yeah, that real hard graft, because if you're doing something like that, it really does take a, a mental toll on you, a physical toll on you to drag something out of the undergrowth and turn it back to how it was. Then you moved on to the Eden Project. And I remember asking you years ago and saying, well, how did you do this? And you said to me, positivity positivity and there's two things that have really hit the nail so far what you said to me is that the one the positivity all those years ago but two not knowing all the facts the naivety and that's often what I say is that if I'd have known everything if I'd have known all the pitfalls I'd never would have started but the naivety is quite a powerful tool so how on earth did you go from Heligan then to this old China mine China clay pit mine and, and turn it into this tropical paradise well One of the things that you and I both know is that people love an adventure. And with Heligan, I'd had hundreds of people volunteer to help me and it became kind of like a strange release for many people. And I learned through doing Heligan, if the skill you have is, I can't change, well, I can just about change a light bulb. I haven't got technical skills. But the thing that I'm good at, if I forgive my boastfulness, but I think I may be the best person I've ever met at making other people believe in themselves. And... I love creating stages. I love asking people who've got something to give to come and join and then light a fire in them which says, the person I dreamt I could be at 19, maybe I haven't lost it. Maybe there is another chance. And, okay, if you'd wanted to win the FA Cup, for example, and you were now 50, that was never going to happen. So you need to replace the FA Cup with the imagination that you'd want to do something else. But... The amount of people who volunteered to join us and who then would get proper jobs at Eden, just like Elegant, are people who give their passion totally because they believe that they've been given this new chance to be that person that they wanted to be. And the other really good thing about that is not only is there the passion and the optimism of that, but that many of the youngsters who joined us were perhaps, how do I put this, they were perhaps incompletely parented and... When you have a whole bunch of old geezers who are finding their excitement in life rekindled with a whole bunch of young kids who feel rather frightened by the future and what's coming at them, you get them together, you get this extraordinary kind of faux parental bonding where the youngsters are being looked after by the oldsters and then in turn the youngsters then start to look after the oldsters and so on. I don't think there is anything more exciting than that. Building Eden is marvellous, but... You know, people always say to me, Tim, you're such a visionary. And I say, really? I promise you, if my life depended on it, I could go into any school classroom in Britain dealing with kids between the age of 8 and 13, and every single young person in that classroom will have a dream as big as Eden. Of course you did. You did. I did. We dreamt of building marvellous dams, didn't we, to dam this river, or a mad Ludwig castle. That's what humans are so fantastic for. So when you remember how we felt when we were between 8 and 13, when we were having those dreams, just think how unhappy somewhere deep in our soul we must be if we've been told to put those dreams aside. So if someone then comes along and says, wouldn't it be bloody great if we all got together, blah, 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 and then you talk to people who've got a bit of money and you say, you don't want to be like that guy who turned the Beatles down, did you? And then you build up a picture of possibility. 
And the bit I would say is the visionary bit really wasn't very difficult. Imagining you're building a lost civilization with no advertising at all in the middle of a clay mine and it's going to have these structures that are marvellous. When I phrase it to you that way, it's bog standard. It's Ryder Haggard. The bit that is a bit visionary is to persuade yourself you can persuade several hundred people professionally trained to only use the word no to say yes. But again, you see, I'm an optimist. I think most people are good. And they've also been trained that if you say no all the time, you will have been right 99% of the time. So what you're actually trying to do is to persuade people that you are in that 1% and that they are smart enough to see that you are in that 1% and that they will find a great nobility in supporting it. And I think a lot of people that I meet, I'm sure you do too, who want to do big projects are quite insulting to other people. They say, people won't support me, people won't do this, people won't do that. It's like in the music business, people who are playing unlistenable music felt that somebody ought to be supporting them to do that unlistenable music. And I was always very cruel. I would say, if people don't want it, turn it into a hobby, mate. You know, get real. There's no commitment by society to support you in that respect. So I think that's quite helpful. I mean, both you and I share things, which is, I guess you would describe us both as being on the left politically in terms of the social contract we would like to see or expect to see. But also, unusually, I think we both share the idea that commerce does not have to be a dirty word if it has a moral compass. And that, in fact, being commercial, if properly used, is good for the environment and is also good for the business that you're taking forward. And if you are behaving well with that business, you will actually not only be keeping neutral in terms of a sustainability quotient, you'll be putting more back than you were taking out. That's often the thing is that when you look at the environment, there's often a backlash against large corporations or whatever else. But you've got to have commerce because we can't all live in this weird commune where everything is free and we just, you know, that doesn't work. There has to be business. It has to work. But it does have to have the right social conscience. You know, it, it can't be raping and pillaging. But the two aren't mutually exclusive. They're not mutually exclusive. And I think environmentalists and politicians both have been pathetic. And I think they've been pathetic because they haven't understood that they've allowed the arguments of the left about the commons and people's rights and da, 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 to make them like a red rag for a bull. And they haven't done what round their own kitchen tables they believe. If I say to anybody, do you think a company should be punished for putting raw sewage into our watercourses? They go, of course. Who on earth thinks that that is an appropriate thing? Who thinks it's appropriate for a company to have the right to look after something which is people's right, it is a commons, the waters of our country, for example, to be treated in such a way, treasonously, I believe, and that word is not often used, but I believe it is that powerful. It is treasonous for a commercial company to be able to destroy something which should be there for our great, 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 great grandchildren. And that is actually what is happening. And we're being given excuses that the reason is they can't afford to do X, they can't afford to do Y. Well, why were they privatised then? For heaven's sake, this kind of sloppy, pathetic capitalism is exactly what we need to be fighting. You can be producing great crops. You can be charging more for water that is clean, but you've got to make it clean. That's right. And also the other thing is that if they discharge a load of sewage then all they're faced with is a fine and it might sound quite hefty but when you look at their turnover it's nothing they've just probably put it in their spreadsheet as an extra cost many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey they can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wagovi and zeb pound for those who qualify plus they accept most insurance plans to get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hold up. What was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. when you talk to the general public there is a real fear and most people feel that they don't have the ability to make change they can do a bit of recycling here they can you know waste less food there and all the rest of it but it's up to the government and they put all their faith in the governments to do stuff and you listen to all the speeches that have been given and we must make a change and this is the line in the sand in your opinion are these changes being made is it a load of bluff is it just about getting elected again or are they really committed to making these changes if I was being really honest, I have never met a group of people so ill-equipped to lead a nation, ever, ever. And it would scare me if I thought that the government was of any importance whatsoever. I actually feel that we're living in a really weird period of transition. And the period of transition is a period where we still have national democracies across what we call the Western world. And we likely use the word civilization, although you and I over a glass of wine could question that quite a lot. But what is, I think, happening is that over the next 20 years, there's going to be a giant revolution. And no one is really sure where it's coming from. But I'll tell you what I think is going to happen. I think within 20 years, centralized government as we know it will disintegrate. I believe the civil service, as we know it, will disintegrate. I believe that food production will become localised. And I think the technological advances that are coming from things like fermentation technology, regenerative farming, the clean meat revolution, are of such scale that the public and government ministries have not taken account of what is coming. I mean, this is really significant. When you and I were together socially, we were talking about fermentation technology yeah. and how how you can produce dairy proteins for 30% of the current price that you can do it with cows. And that's now. I mean, this is going to be huge, which means that the way we look at farms is going to be changed completely. And you and I could talk for another 40 minutes on that. But I think the really interesting thing, which is something we've discussed, is it is now possible to imagine where we live as being at the centre of a supermarket where with renewable energies, with solar, with geothermal, which we've pioneered here at Eden, we're going to be within a few years in a position where we will have super energy at our, our fingertips. We're pioneering at Eden too the use of recycled plastics in designer polytunnels so that they don't look like a blot on the landscape. I actually think that within very few years, you're going to find the concept of the farmer's market is going to transform into the farmer's supermarket. And we will be growing fresh fruit, fruit and vegetables 365 days a year. We will be taking control of our land. We will be taking control of the cleanliness of our rivers. And more important than any of this, you're going to see a combination of deep geothermal and solar provide local energy hubs. Right. And that will probably be augmented. You may well take a sharp intake of breath, but you're going to see, I think, micronuclear using thorium technology, which isn't scary, which is being developed at the moment by companies like Rolls Royce. They were originally designed in 85, 86 by a company called Westinghouse in America. And literally, as they were going to launch it, it was built for a submarine. Uh, just as they were going to launch it, they had the, remember the Three Mile Island disaster? And so it was put in mothballs. But it's now being worked on a lot. So you're going to have that. And, of course, the other thing that we've talked about is the hydrogen revolution. There's a lot of interest in that. And in British universities, I know of three where they're spending in excess of £300 million 
£100 each researching that, which is also really interesting for battery technology and things like that, where using electricity, you can turn water into hydrogen. That is really interesting. So you've got 3D printing, which means that you'll be able to make parts and building materials at distance where you live. Just imagine the supply chain that has now been interrupted. You'll be able to produce all the food you need where you are. You'll be able to produce the energy you need where you are. The medical expertise will be available, and it'll be available in a really interesting way. The role of the general practitioner is going to be that of a rider of a very good Formula One motor vehicle because at fingertips they will have diagnostic assistance which means that GPs will start to become better and better and better and better and operations will become more and more secure and safe where you are because the power of IT is absolutely astonishing. I went to Chennai last year, Madras as was, to the Aravind Eye Hospital which is considered the most advanced company in the world, not just medical company, company in the world. And these guys have got pictures of 38 million eyeballs and they're working with Google and the Moorfield Hospital in London. And they said, do you know how exciting it is to have 38 million eyeballs at your disposal? And you then align them with the medical records of the owner of the eyeball. What you then discover is they've discovered about five or six things already that he was saying that in a particular configuration of veins, 100% you're certain to have a coronary later in your life. So the world we're looking at in 20 years' time, what is the purpose of government? Yeah, it's so interesting when you put that side to it because when you look at how government is today and you address some of these problems, they've become pretty irrelevant quite quickly. But the, the interesting aspect to all these changes, when we talk about fermentation foods, and I'll put a link in the description here of... of how you can read a bit more about fermentation food and, and also terracotta. The fermenting of food is that we're not necessarily talking about pickles or anything else, but the idea is you can exactly copy the milk from a cow. It'd be exactly the same, but actually probably more nutritional value to it. It'll be cheaper, but it'll be manufactured close to the marketplace. And often when I talk to farmers in the UK about this, it seems like it's an abstract science fiction type thing, but the Chinese have already invested billions of dollars into this already it's happening but the interesting thing is that being closer to source having better medical facilities all that, it acts as a buffer against a pandemic that we've just seen if you think about building materials you talk about you know 3d printing i built some enclosures at the farm recently getting materials it's a nightmare because i rely on materials coming to the docks from scotland all over the place but of course if it's manufactured locally it becomes much more of a robust system it is actually fantastically exciting. Just for your listeners, let me just tell you, the reason this fermentation technology is so astonishing is that any of you who've had concerns about global starvation and access to food for the people all over the world, what you need to know is fermentation technology will be cheap and it can be carried out wherever you are because you're mostly farming the air. So it means if you're on the borders of the Gobi Desert or in the middle of the Namib or you're, you know, wherever you are, you'll be able to produce food. It's going to liberate so many communities from enslavement to both big companies or poverty itself. But what's going to happen to me, though, Tim? What's going to happen to my free range farm with my rare breed free range pigs and all that? Because I know there's farmers listening to this will be screaming and pulling their hair out. I know a lot of them will be going, this is really interesting technology, but a lot of people, well, this is the end of a way of life and something that's really important to the countryside. So what happens to, I mean, you've got cattle and rare breed pigs. I've got you know, turkeys and rare breed pigs. What happens to that state of farming? I don't think that stage of farming is going to be affected, nor do I think all livestock farming is going to be affected. I think that it will become smaller. It will become more... I was going to say ethical. I don't mean it in the sense of like a moral compass. I think it is going to be that we will understand from the measurements of the land what is the optimal livestock numbers that we can keep on it. And, you know, I've heard you talk about regenerative farming and that a lot of those techniques. We forget how recently that rediscovery of regenerative farming has come. And I think there's a lot of very exciting stuff in all of that. But the question you're asking is this. How are farmers who are already in a pretty precarious place, if you remove subsidy, how are they going to make good livelihoods in the future and keep our countryside the way we love it? I would throw down a gauntlet. I think, A, 
we need to ensure that government intervention encourages, like anybody listening, look up Mondragon, Mondragon, the big cooperative in the Basque country of Spain. Look at what happens. Five or six farms around me here in Cornwall, you talk to them about distilling, distilling stuff or canning food or bottling food or producing a mill or whatever. None of them can afford some of the capital investment. Altogether, with a bit of assistance, they could. I think what we're going to see is a whole series of cooperatives spread up. The British are fiercely independent, I know that. But also, it's no mistake that an awful lot of British farmers have a very hard emotional landscape they're dealing with. And I think the health and well-being of a lot of our farmers, we need to protect them and create an environment in which they can have this mix of the lonely pioneer on his tractor, so to speak, or her tractor, but also collaborative work in other areas so that they are actually part of the countryside management. I think it is really important that we do not see technological advance as being a threat on farming, just like we should start to teach and train our fishermen to become protectors of our oceans rather than just the harvesters of them. The same, we need to actually really help our farmers to embed those skills that have been handed out for generations to be right at the root of what we're talking about here. This revolution is not about getting rid of farmers. It is about building on their already existing talent and actually nurturing it to take on more responsibility. The other thing is that one of the worst words in the environment is farm. Farm is so damaging because people can't see the countryside as anything other than a farm, which is livestock and a few chickens or some grain. I think there's going to be a huge growth in the development of farms as centres of education, as centres of well-being, in the widest possible sense of those words. And I think that the prospects of rural life are going to become a lot more exciting than they've ever been before. We can't put the genie in the bottle. But for us to live out this idea that people who farm are not interested in good literature or opera or rock concerts or great food, that's so old-fashioned. People all over our rural life would love, would utterly love to have a life that is a marriage between the best of what a city has to offer and the very best of what country living has got to offer. And I think that is why the period we're going into is so exciting, because it's going to become a real marriage where we put country and city back together again in a meaningful way. And also our food systems have always been fluid, haven't they? They've always changed. If you think of the history of agriculture in the UK, you know, before the First World War, before the Second World War, and how it's changed after the Second World War with the reliance on agrochemicals and intensification and also the subsidies that were paid to produce more and more. And so farmers have responded to those forces, those economic forces. So as things change, we will naturally change again. But there is always a fear of that change and how it will destroy a couple of generations, three generations of work. But we shouldn't really be scared of these changes because these changes are important and they're coming and they're coming for good reason. It's interesting how the whole pandemic has changed people's attitude to the natural world as well. And I think that COVID has been hideous for so many reasons, but the one positive that I see that hopefully it'll stay when we go back to normal, hopefully it just doesn't dissipate, is this renewed connection with the natural environment. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think people realise that it's not a nice to have, it's something they need. Funny enough, when you read the books by Brian Keenan and Terry Waite, having been hostages all those years ago, the first thing they talk about is, geez, the sight of a tree, it's like a cross for them. And I think it's true. I think, like you, I am a champion for the Natural History GCSE. In fact, I wish there were no GCSEs, but Natural History is something that I think is utterly critical because it's the only study which joins together all of the isms and ologies and culture. And I think it's actually pretty interesting. Well, programmes like the ones you make, you know, about the farm are very popular. And when I saw yesterday or the day before this thing about country file and how it had more viewers even than the Squid Game, and you see Clarkson and farming, regardless of what you think about Jeremy Clarkson, what you're actually seeing is a revealing of humans knowing there's something important. Yeah, it's a natural connection. Yeah, I don't want to admit I'm spiritual, but I am a bit, you know what I mean? 
there's this real deep connection, but we live in an urban society. And I think the pandemic has forced us to, when we're at home, if you've got a garden, there's time to sit in the garden or you've been watching the birds on the bird feeder or you've got an hour's exercise. That connection, I mean, lots of the emails I got, people finding, they thought it was tropical moths that had obviously you know, been in the box of bananas and it was flown off from the supermarket. But in fact, it was a privet hawk moth or something like that. But they wanted to really connect with it. And I'm hoping that stays. But this reconnection love of nature and the natural world, and there's lots of ideas of rewilding. And that always seems to be in some big estate somewhere owned by some very rich family where they can rewild a huge area, which is great. But the rewilding element of being in our cities and being, you know, in our town centres is really important rather than being far flung somewhere else. And our parks, our urban parks, all these things are really important. You're involved with a scheme like that at the moment, aren't you, with the um, Broad Marsh? I think the thing that is very odd in all this, gosh, I'm about to make a really big point, which is difficult to convey, is that because we judge everything in, in money terms, which is a human thing. We've invented money and now we value land or whatever in terms of the money that it is worth. The concept of the cost of not doing things is still alien to the treasury. So that, for example, if you had a less density of accommodation, you might make less money in terms of selling that property. However, if the centrepiece of a city, if it was beautifully greened and was artistically very strong, would create a cultural wealth that would feed into well-being and the general sense of morale of the city in a way that would be completely disproportionate to the value of the houses not built. And I think one of the battles, for example, at Broadmarsh is going to be Greg Nugent, who's leading it, is actually a really, really good chair of it. And you have Thomas Heatherwick's design at the moment, which is stunning, but is generally regarded perhaps as not being intense enough in terms of the money it makes. But it's basically saying things like, here are these huge structures, we could be really environmentally unfriendly and smash them all down, or we puncture holes in them and we use the foundations and we use some of the girders and we use some of these things and we not wasteful, we just create marvelous places. And it's thrilling to watch the way they operate like that and create completely new and iconic structures. And I think that we'll probably end up, it's not for me to say, but that we'll probably end up with something that is some halfway between the two in terms of density and stuff. But in terms of brand, I mean, I've been to a number of places in the world where architects and the people have got together, the most stunning of which is Nantes in France, which as a town went 20 years ago, they had zero tourists. Today, they have 2.7 million a year. They had a university, which was the university you went to if nowhere else would take you. Today, it's one of the most difficult universities to get into. Big theatre companies have moved there. You know how they've done it? It was plants that started the whole thing. They turned the whole place into a park. And you know what they did in autumns, which was brilliant? This guy, Jacques Soignon, who was the horticultural director of Nantes, when he arrived there, he saw some kids spray painting illegally in his equivalent of Victorian greenhouses. So he put an advertisement in the local papers. He said, I love you, clever people. Would you all come back? Bring all of the people who are really good at doing graffiti and I want you to spray paint my garden. So they all turned up and he said, I want you to do it, but this time, could you please use water-based paints? And then he took photographs and then the media came to take photographs of what had been taken, people started to come to the garden. It was a place that was active. So they built garden benches that were weird angles. They built chairs for small people. And then by this time, it was getting quite a reputation. At this point, he was in charge of all of the roads, the horticulture on the roads of Nantes. And he got this large team to do the pollarding. For those of you who are not familiar with the phrase, when you cut off the branches of a tree, just leaving a stumps for it to grow the next year. It's called pleaching in Britain, mainly. But same sort of thing, anyway. They got all the branches and he didn't burn them or compost them. He tied them together in bunches and he got all the spray paint guys to spray the top of all of these branches, orange and red. And he then got this gang of people to tie them to all the bridges of Nantes. And then it suddenly everybody realised Nantes bridges are all on fire. And it was national. It was on television and everything. And this has now become an annual festival. You know, the... It just created brand new traditions. Yeah. You know, and that's the key to it. I love that phrase that it's like the power of plants, isn't it? It got plants involved, like you did. <laughs> so what is new for the Eden Project? So we talked about the shopping centre that you're involved with. But going back to the Eden Project, you're developing new sites, aren't you? 
Our project in Qingdao in China is two-thirds finished and will be open the big end of 2023. And it's amazing. It's like the Sydney Opera House of the China Seas. Wow. That's been amazing because we've had to do all of that on Zoom. The team have been getting up at six every morning and doing these conference calls with our Chinese friends who are the other end of the day. And it's been a bit of a slog for them. Uh, well, anybody has to get up. It's like doing a morning radio show. But it's been really lovely to see those relationships develop. And over the period of this pandemic, also China has gone through a real long night of the soul about the environment. And environment is now a really big issue in China to the degree that all staff at any SOE, which is a state-owned enterprise, must have environmental training and analyse the impact on the water and the soil around them and the air. Wow, can you imagine that if that was in the UK, we had the same sort of training? That would be amazing. To be honest, I think it's about to come. I think it really is about to come. We work with a marvellous education group called Aim High, who we're hoping to have join Eden. If you haven't seen their four one-hour courses on how to talk about climate change, Unilever are doing it, the health service is doing it. Matthew Shribman, who's the leader of it, he said, do you want to teach people stuff that people say the teacher was really, really clever but affects nothing? Or do you want to actually create, if you like, the theatre of education where people really feel joyous about having learnt stuff and it matters and they remember it? And he's, yeah. he's just terrific at that. And I think we're going to see, going right back in this conversation to when we were talking about decentralization and everything being a muscular localism, the last piece of that is going to be education. Because one of the things that's happened in Britain, which I think is criminal, has been that the spirit of the amateur, for example, our senior civil service, by and large, go to Oxford or Cambridge and they do something general and they join the administrative class. And it means because they're good generalists, you can put them to anything, which in a new technological world is just not true. But the other thing is, it means you leave local government, the local butcher, baker, farmer, who are elected to it, who then appoint some officers. Jeez, have you ever looked at the budgets of these councils? Many of the councils of our country have running budgets the size of a small multinational. And we're setting our friends and, and our public servants up to fail. In Holland, if you were elected into those roles, you would be offered the chance of learning about how to do budgeting, how to do this, how to do the other, you know. But crikey, we put so much pressure on public-spirited people and we set them up to fail, don't we? I mean, we really yeah. set them up to fail. Yeah, that aspect has massively got to change. But it is interesting when you talk about council budgets, it, sometimes they are fairly eye-watering. But with councils often, as councils do a good job and everything else, but they have to spend a budget. They don't have to create any wealth, do they? Like a business would have to do. They've got to actually create the wealth. But the question I want to ask you about the project in China. Now, how does that work? Setting up the Eden Project in China, how does that work? You've got to work with the Chinese government because you can't do it as an individual or a group of outsiders, can you? The way it worked is one of China's sort of superstars came to Eden and came, in fact, half a dozen times and went there and to Heligan and did an interview in the Daily News, China Daily News, saying that we were the most inspirational place he'd seen and he'd travelled all over the world. After which, literally by the week, there were delegations from China and this delegation came from the city of Qingdao, which whereas Britain had had Hong Kong as its colony, the Germans had had Qingdao. And after the First World War, they'd lost it. But when you go to Qingdao, it's like Munich. And it has not been damaged by the Cultural Revolution at all because Mao Zedong had his summer house there. But it's you think, I've never heard of it, says Jimmy. It's nine million people. Yes, the time I was in China, I'd, you'd go from city to city and I'd say to our guide, I'd say, well, I've never heard of this city. He goes, oh, it's twice the size of Paris. It's like two New Yorks. And it, it's the equivalent of Coventry. And you're like, are you serious? Or driving for three hours and still being in the cityscape and cities that I've never seen before. But something like an Eden project in China, that's a lovely focal point to really concentrate on the environment, but also what a fantastic thing for you guys to achieve, to take that out there to China and to watch that same effect that's happened in Cornwall, the positivity that Eden has created in Cornwall, to have that in China. So China's a huge project. That's going to be finished in when, 2020? End of 2023. Three. What else have you got bubbling? We've got Morecambe in the northwest of England, which is a very exciting project. You know, we're at the first stages of design. We've got wonderful support up there. We're just waiting. We've got private support for it. We're waiting for the government support for that. 
We've got a project in Dundee in Scotland on the Tayside in the old gas works, which we're really excited about. And we're partners with the university, with the city, with the marvellous publishers, DC Thompson, who do the Beano, amongst other things, and several other people. So what's happening in Dundee, then? Is it going to be plant-based exhibition? What's the idea of that? Well, the team have come up with an idea of creating nine new guilds for the 21st century, and we're going to build the guild headquarters in this area. And we're also hoping to work with a group of people who, if you have never worked with them or heard of them, you must put this right, called the James Hutton Institute. Have you heard of them? The James Hutton Institute are a really cool botanic research outfit, and they're working with a number of innovative companies, including IGS, who are innovative growing solutions, and they're growing big vegetable towers and things under light. But unlike the old Chelsea boys who basically they grow you a bit of basil and some feathery lettuce, this is serious dude growing. This is the business. So this is where they not only in terms of interesting architecture to grow the veg, but they will change the light recipe as well. So it's the latest technology, isn't it? It is the latest technology. I've got a vision. You know a Marshall stack from when you were young? Yeah. Yeah, the big guitar amplifiers. They're valve amplifiers, and you see these valves glow red. Imagine on the Dundee skyline coming out of a gas lighter, you have these valves, but they're actually these growing marvellous plants. I feel that we need to build things that enable people to dream about new futures that remain ours to make, because I think... The future is so, so exciting. I'm so jealous of young people and I'm so cross at the middle-aged men who predominantly own the media who believe that if it bleeds, it leads. So they tell news stories about how everything is bad, how there's crack dealers at every corner, how every stranger is going to molest you or do something horrible, when the truth is not that. Yeah, the positivity is the key. You tell it through the prism of positivity you know, the can-do attitude has a massive effect, particularly when, you know, if you're handling the climate crisis, the pandemic, whatever, for everyone at home listening to it, you feel like you've been battered over the head constantly with negativity. But you get a chink of light of positivity. You know, there is hope. We can make a change. Then people will follow. Yeah, they will. They will. I mean, our time is coming, Jimmy. Well, yours. (laughs) Mine's about done. But listen, you are such an inspiration and carry on being such an inspiration. I think the work you've done is incredible, but the work that you're doing now is just phenomenal. Yeah, well, I feel a bit like Johnny Cash in the second part of his career. You know, he had a bad time with the booze and then he got rescued and made his best albums. (laughs) You found God. Yeah, no, no. I'm afraid I haven't found God. I sometimes find that a regret that I don't have that sort of certainty about life. But I, I tend to believe, as do many people who do what I do, that the thing that uh, Richard Dawkins, right at the end of the book, there's this paragraph, which I paraphrase here because I, he writes it far better than I will paraphrase it. But he said, I'd love to believe in some God with a big grey beard and a benign look on his face and lightning and coming out at the end of his fingers. But the truth is, every day when I look at the magic of the natural kingdom and the extraordinary interrelationships between things, how could any man-made deity compare with that? And I tend to agree with that. But I think what that gives you is it gives you the get-out clause that you can be very spiritual, but you don't have to wear a T-shirt for a particular tribe. Yeah, amen to that. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, it's been a real pleasure. And the thing I love about it... Also, you've made these huge changes, influenced so many people. But yet you're so bad at using a laptop. You're worse than me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, I think it's an amazing... I I love love it. You go, oh, the technology, the changes we're going to make, the world. And you're like, right, what button do I press and how do I... And I'm the same. (laughs) Jimmy, Jimmy, just the last thing I have to show you. When I was in the music industry, I was a a piano player that then became a keyboard player. That You know, that's when you grow up, you can play more than one. And... Every year, you know, Korg or Roland or Fairlight would produce a new, very expensive synthesizer. And the synthesizer players would all go out and get it. But there was usually only one or two people in the whole profession that knew how to use them. And they were just all working off presets. And they could have just stuck with their original synthesizer. And what was utterly brilliant was like after about 15 years of this evolution of synthesizers, you'll never guess the sound tabs that started to come out on the newest ones were sounds of the original ones that they never knew how to use. <laughs> oh, there's hope. Yeah, you need to get your band back together. That's next. Oh, my God. Well, that, that, yeah. 
I think, what is that uh, joke? You know, less hip, more hip replacement. <laughs> That's true. It's just, listen, thank you ever so much. Uh, it's a great pleasure. So, I think you agree with me. Tim has got some amazing views. He's not one for sitting on his hands and doing nothing. He really does say what he thinks, which I love. Now, I'm back with the pigs again. Hey, guys. You all right? Have you had a nice day, pigs? Did you enjoy it? Did you enjoy the podcast? Did you? I don't think they're convinced. So hopefully, pigs, are you going to like and subscribe? Because you can do it with your trotters. I'm sure you can. So, guys, if you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe. And I'll see you again on Jimmy's Farm for another episode. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.